Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning I will be delivering the sermon and I will be taking it from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. And uh, before we begin, let us come in this time to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we ask, O oh God, that even as we delve deep into your word, that it will indeed be a time of ministry unto us that your word will not only provide clarity, but that your spirit will provide conviction, so that we, O oh God, may have our eyes open to see who you are, especially concerning the power of your spirit and the person of your Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh God, therefore, that you will draw us close to you, that you will cause us, O oh God, to see the wonderful truths in your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by reading from Acts 4, verse 32, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible, uh, if you'd like to follow along with me. Verse 32. Now, the full number of those who were believing were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold the piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Uh, 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I thought it fit to continue uh, in this series of sermons that I have been uh, delivering to this congregation at All Saints, uh, beginning with the sermon on the Sunday after Ascension Day, uh, and starting with the book of Acts chapter 1, and then following on with the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. And now we are at uh, the end of Acts chapter 4 into the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Um, if we look at the background of this passage, it has a lot to do with how the ministry of the gospel is flourishing at the beginning because of what God had poured out unto his people, unto the disciples of Jesus Christ, who is now ascended up into heaven. Uh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father and now God the Father and Jesus Christ send pour out the Holy Spirit uh, unto the people of God especially those who are followers of Jesus Christ and then we, we see how in Acts chapter 1 that it is all the work of the Spirit huh? how being filled with power is equated with the ability to witness boldly to preach boldly even under persecution as we uh, will note even prior to Acts chapter 4, we see that Peter and John, when they heal a man who was crippled for many, many years, uh, they are also challenged and they are told to, to stop talking about this Jesus. But we note also that Peter was then filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the same phrase, filled with the Spirit or, or uh, in the Spirit. He says, no, you know, there is this firmness of conviction. And therefore, uh, the previous two sermons have highlighted how the work of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, entails a life that is emboldened, a life that is transformed, the conviction that has been imputed on us. And now we see, as a result of that bold preaching, as the Spirit continues to work, people's lives are turned to the Gospel. People come to conviction of repentance and faith in the Gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That this Spirit that is being poured forth is subsequent to the glorious resurrection of Jesus subsequent to his triumphant ascension and also that of his pouring out of the Spirit now. So it, it sounds very rosy, it sounds very promising, even though there are external threats from the religious leaders towards the apostles, it doesn't seem to hinder them, they are able to, to continue preaching with boldness and, and we see that the result of this preaching is not just uh, that of uh, being intellectually informed, uh, not just uh, a, a, a moment to ponder and think, oh, no, does God really love me? We see that the impact of coming to faith in Jesus as a result of this uh, spirit-filled preaching of the apostles is that it is a community. It gives birth to a community of faith, not just a propositional com com community of faith, not, that means not just a community that, that is able to tell you what they believe, a community that's able to live out the implications of what they believe. That as they, they heard about how God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. How in spite of the sin of the Jews, God wanted to show them his love and that he wanted them to come to repentance. This same tone and posture of the love of God in the gospel is now being permeated amongst the communities. So it's not just a, a propositional faith, it's a propositional faith with such a profound impact on their life that it results in what we see 
in chapter 4 verse 32, isn't it? It's quite interesting. It says here that the full number of those who believed, it started with a community of about 120 prior to the day of Pentecost. It grew to 3,000 and now it will go on to go up to 5,000. Okay, and, and now this community in verse 32 says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And what, what, what did that mean? It was therefore not just about being able to say what they believe accurately together. There's no contradiction. It's not just about that. But they were so united. They were so one in the gospel of Christ that it spilled over in the way they treated each other. And we see that, that this summary statement from verse 32 to verse 37 is actually some quite, summed up quite, um, quite beautifully, actually. It says that, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And, and this is sandwiched, huh? this care for each other is sandwiched with the great power of the apostles who were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. So as people poured in in response to this powerful preaching, they continued to experience that power in daily living as a community. And how, how did that look like? Well, it looked like this. Everyone's needs were being met. Those who were, who were blessed materially, who had much to spare, would then sell off what, what was needed to in order to, to meet the needs of those who were in dire need. And it's interesting that in this community, it's not just about uh, everyone doing what they thought was right. They laid it at the apostles' seat. You see, uh, again, even as I read earlier on that, this phrase of laying the contributions at the apostles' feet, uh, and even that of judgment later, you see, um, for especially for for Safira and that she falls dead at the feet of Peter, all right, and 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 we 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 see that in verse ten. So there is this illusion that when you talk about laying things at the feet of the apostles, even falling dead at the feet of Peter later on in judgment, that there is this illusion of how authority has been given to the apostles of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget in in Acts chapter one, Jesus has spent at least forty days giving them commands to pass down to the rest of the church and eventually the world as to what the kingdom of God would look like, what it entails. And we see this being fleshed out, isn't it? Not just, therefore, good gestures, not just acts of charity. Not, they're not random at all. They are all accountable acts born out of love in response to God's love for them. And now it is laid at the feet of the apostles, those who are preaching these messages, to then ensure that they are disseminated and dispersed in a way that befits the spirit of the gospel. And then from there, we see it zoom on a particular individual who will be very significant, especially in the life of the Apostle Paul later on. This man called Joseph, uh, or more popularly called, uh, even by the Apostles, by the name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He is introduced here, and he will play a very prominent role in the life of Paul later on. Um, but here, we see that he follows suit. This Barnabas, or Joseph rather, this Joseph follows suit. Whatever he has, he sells a field that belongs to him and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. So this is not something uh, that was required of those who were believers, but it was something that out of the generosity and love of these community members' hearts, they gave to those who had need. And they were accountable at the feet of the apostles. So it all sounds really good, in spite of... of uh, Persecution, which will only increase later on in this book, in spite of threats by the Jewish leaders, this movement of the church, the early church, 
you seem to be flourishing. They're all united. They're all loving each other. They are all uh, boldly preaching the gospel in the power of the Spirit. It all sounds so rosy, isn't it? Um, but sadly, something happens. If Barnabas is the positive individual highlighted, we see in contrast uh, the couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who take on not only the role of contradiction of the gospel and perverting the gospel message through their lives, uh, but their names itself would highlight the irony of how a community that responds to the gospel nevertheless has sheep inside who are not worthy of the gospel message, who actually do not yield to the gospel of love, but instead seek to put forward their own self-serving agenda. And so we see that, sadly, in this uh, initially promising and beautiful picture of the early church, we see it very quickly uh, potentially being uh, compromised by these two individuals. We see in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, But a man, so but in contrast to Barnabas, eh? but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they also followed suit. Eh? They, they sold a piece of property, but they did two things uh, which, we, which I've read to you, which you may or may not have noticed. Firstly, both of them planned something together, you know, uh, and they planned this to keep back for themselves the proceeds of the land. And, and what this means, this phrase, uh, to keep back, it actually has this tone of embezzling. Yeah? So it's, it's not so much whether uh, it was a, a legally uh, binding kind of, of gesture from the couple. We have no evidence of that. But we know that there was therefore intent to embezzle. You know, whilst outwardly trying to show people, you know, I'm doing what all these other rich Christians are doing. But actually, they are holding back something. You know, and, and, and not just to the public, to the apostles. They are trying to embezzle the apostles. Not that the, the apostles received the money for themselves, but there is an element here, not only of hypocrisy to show themselves to be generous when they're actually not, they're officially want to keep it for themselves, but they want to tell people that no, we're giving of our own, you know, freely like everyone else, like Barnabas perhaps. And it is this act of lack of integrity this verb of keeping back for himself, which actually entails a more serious offense of embezzling of funds, it is this early Christian couple, sadly, however, who come to realize without much opportunity from there on that you dare not embezzle God. You may be saying, huh, they were not trying to embezzle God directly, isn't it? Well, God owns everything. But in treating the apostles like fools who didn't know, may not know any better, they forgot that these are God's representatives. And more importantly, they actually contradicted the whole spirit of the gospel, which is to give of oneself, to sacrifice without wanting any personal glory for oneself. It is all about the glory of God and Him pouring out His Spirit to show us how much God loved us through Jesus Christ. But they, through this act, not so much what they said, through this act of embezzling, they faced the wrath of God. So it is, it is so tragic, isn't it, that in this very beautiful origins, genesis of the church in the New Age, we see immediately the reality of sin is such that it can immediately compromise the beauty of the church in living out the gospel message. 
it's uh, here even before they were persecuted uh, uh, widely in Jerusalem it's here only in, in Acts 5 and we see this already happening and this is a threat and we will see how it's not Peter who decides that they should, should meet judgment but it is God who meets out judgment and we see this that as it is laid at the apostles feet first by Ananias Peter sees through Ananias and he says in verse 3 Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep it back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own after it was sold what is, was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to God you see Peter is able to immediately pinpoint and analyze that there was no requirement for him uh, to give everything that he earned from the proceeds of the sale of the land but it was what he put forward for people to see there was an element of deceit an element of embezzlement involved and Peter saw through that and that's why he says why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart he could have given and just said to the apostles, no, I'm taking a part of it for myself, I'm giving whatever spare change I have to give you to bless whoever it can bless. But he didn't. So there is an element there, this possibility of embezzlement, of misleading the apostles, of misleading the church as they are committed to this genuine sacrificial act of love, of giving to all who have need in this new community of several thousand. It is this that leads to judgment. And, and let's not try to downplay it as like, oh, you know, it's it's nothing, lah, you know, let's, let's just correct him and let him go. But Peter saw this threat, this threat that has an ancient precedent, and we'll come to that later, this ancient precedent of another couple in the Bible that sought to do things their own way, that sought to sidestep the gravity of their error, of their wrongdoing only to realize its eternal consequences for the rest of the world. It is now in this age of the church, this new church, the origins of the church because of the gospel, that Peter sees through this ancient sinful expression being replicated in another couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And so what does he say? He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Quite scary, is it? Could you imagine if, let's say, uh, one day, Reverend Matthew, our dear vicar, is able to look at us and say, you need to change in this area of your life before the wrath of God comes. Sometimes we talk about people who are in the spirit as just people who uh, burst out in angelic languages, who are able to pray so well with, with emotion in a way that moves people emotionally. But no, we see this other aspect of the power of the spirit. Not only to be able to win people for Christ in that they are able to preach mightily so that God convicts their hearts, but here we see that the spirit-filled apostle of Jesus, Peter, is able to pronounce judgment. Not because he has decided that he doesn't like Ananias or because he feels he should make him an example. No, but he is led by the Spirit to pronounce judgment. So this is something that, that many people uh, may not emphasize enough when they talk about what it means uh, to operate in the Spirit. What it means when we say that uh, the Holy Spirit is among us. Yes, 
people who use spiritual gifts, but it's all to the glory of God who is fully righteous, who will not tolerate any element of sin, of perversion to the gospel message. And we see here, therefore, from the outset that God's righteous judgment is meted out even amongst the new believers, even amongst those who responded to the gospel message but who do not yield to its content, to what it entails. It's a very tragic incident. And we see that as Ananias in verse 5, we hear this, and Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And what was the reaction? Oh, it was a shock, isn't it? It was a great fear that came upon all who heard it. And we see after that, as he was taken away to be buried, just three hours later, his wife comes in. Now, if so far we have reflected on, on at least three things that I want to draw to your attention. Firstly, we see that the, the life of the early church as they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them, filling them, it enabled the apostles to preach the gospel and people's hearts were convicted and they came to faith and they recognized firstly yeah, that being in, in the Spirit entails not only preaching the gospel powerfully but it entails living out the gospel in love, in unity, in solidarity as and responding as Jesus would sacrificially went to anyone who had need. That's the first thing we see that the early church embraced so organically, so totally. We see, however, secondly, that in the midst of all this, there would be those who would have the outward appearance of that kind of religiosity, even that kind of passion, but with deeply perverse intentions, self-serving intentions, self-glorifying intentions, and that immediately betrays any tone of the gospel. The gospel message entails that we die to ourselves, that there is no element of self-serving, there is no element of, of, of uh, trying to, to, to elevate oneself. It is all about serving sacrificially as God would have his church do, in line with the spirit of the gospel in the way of Jesus Christ. Now this second thing is, is, is that threat. Uh, interestingly, the, the late uh, Reverend John Stott uh, in his commentary on this passage, highlights that in, in this uh, segment of three chapters, uh, from chapter 3 all the way now to, chapters, uh, uh, to chapter 5, and later on he says there are actually three threats that, that, that react against the powerful outpouring of the Spirit. And he says, firstly, it's external persecution, but secondly, it is here, from within, the threat from within, that as the devil sought to clamp down on this powerful outpouring of the Spirit in evangelism and preaching the gospel, he also tries to go from within to, to inspire, provoke those who are from within to have this outward appearance of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, but with deeply rooted self-serving agendas and that spit in the face of the gospel message. And thirdly, he would also, Reverend John Stott, the late Reverend John Stott, would talk about how uh, it is not just persecution from outside, it is also uh, compromise from within. But he talks about a third one, which is distraction later on, on how the gospel message risks uh, being slowed down because of other distractions, uh, as, as real as those needs are. Okay, so but now we are focusing on the second one, which whereby there is a threat to compromise the witness of this church, this powerful witness of the church, with people who have this uh, seemingly outward uh, mimicking or imitation of the gospel, 
the spirit of the gospel but in their heart it is all about self-aggrandization it's all about trying to be more perceived to be more loving more holy and elevated on the pedestal so this is the second thing that, that we have come across in this passage and the third thing that we will see here therefore is the authority of the apostles there needs to be accountability uh, churches today sadly i say this uh, many churches like to talk about love and acceptance and patience but they need to also put that alongside with accountability and judgment. And this is what's happening to Ananias and we will see soon to Sapphira as well. The fact that the free is laying all the proceeds at the apostles' feet happens three times in this passage that I've read alone. And the fact that even Ananias, uh, Sapphira, sorry, when, when she, she falls down and dies, she falls at Peter's feet. We see that, isn't it? In, in verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet. There is this allusion to the authority of the apostles. And that's something that we also need to bear in mind as well. That is, this wasn't a community that, that was led by the Spirit and they, and they said, oh, let's just listen to everybody and the majority wins. No. As they were led by the Spirit, they recognized that Jesus had chosen apostles to pass down his commands, that these communities, as they hear about the cosmos, they respond and live it out would also be accountable to the apostles and apostles to them too. There was an element of accountability to ensure that there would be no compromise. There would be no space for sin to thrive or to take root. And we see now, as we go through this, this is actually being fleshed out, isn't it? Because Peter now confronts Sapphira and says to her, uh, of course she comes in three hours later, in verse 7, she doesn't know what had happened. And Peter says to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So the issue here, isn't it, is how these, these two individuals, this couple, this husband and wife, have said something, okay, and but then they are withholding something, and it doesn't add up. It's a lie. Okay, this is outrightly being uh, not forthright, okay, for their own selfish desires. And so she says, tell me whether, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So she plays along. She plays along, doesn't she? Uh, people want to try and see anything good from this, uh, from these two individuals. They say, well, at least they stuck together to the end, isn't it? Unlike uh, a certain couple, first couple, at least recorded in the Bible in Genesis, Adam and Eve, where they start blaming each other immediately. But worse still for these two individuals, they knew they were wrong and they lied with a straight face to the apostles who were representatives of God passed down to pass down the commands of God they were not divine in any way of course but as Peter points out when you lie to the community when you swindle the church God owns the church God owns the people God has trusted his apostles and you lie to all of us collectively. You lie to God. And so whilst Ananias and Sapphira are faithful to the end to each other, of course she didn't know what happened to the husband, they lie with a straight face. And this is why Peter says to her in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together, together, and not to love God together, but to cheat God together. And he says that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. And now he renders judgment. He says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
immediately. She fell down at his feet, breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. What are we to say about this passage concerning God, concerning the church, and concerning those who seek to respond to the gospel? Well, firstly, we know that God is a God of righteousness, isn't he? And whilst there are, there, there, are, in, there are, it is there in the Bible whereby principles where God will wait for the fullness of time to meet our judgment, it also means that the fullness of time may occur very quickly, especially when it is necessary. When it is necessary to show that God will not tolerate, even from the very genesis of the church, experiencing the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the love of God being shown, the love of Christ being shown. But God will not tolerate blatant rebellion and perversion of the gospel within his church. Let's just be very clear. It is not the apostles through their own whim and fancy. It's as if they felt offended and they said, I'm going to meet out judgment on you. No, it is God who moves. God is the one who meted out judgment. And we have just been talking about how from Acts chapter 1, all the way to chapter 5, the glorious spread of the gospel. But we see Whilst there were threats from outside, the devil also wanted to plant seeds, bad seeds, from within. And God will not have that. For us as the church today, is there still room for the fear of God? He does things in his own time, in his own ways, that consistently uphold his traits of righteousness and mercy at the same time. It is so ironic, eh? uh, if you still to those of you who do not know, that uh, Ananias, the name actually means uh, God who is merciful or God who is gracious. It is so ironic that they experience instead the judgment of God. Safira as well, you may not know this, some of you may. Her name means a beautiful one. But she did something that was so ugly and so rebellious towards God. The irony is very, very clear. And God is someone who will never tolerate that. God is someone who will ensure that his name will always be glorified. So is there room for the fear of God in our life today? I wonder as the church. Regardless of whatever you're going through, this is an important question. Sometimes when, when things don't go our way, do we lash out at God or if we think that we can cut certain corners in our work, in our financial dealings, we say, ah, it's all right, it's a small thing. But fear of God has to do with love for God. If you love God, you would want to glorify Him first, not ourselves. Secondly, concerning the church. You recognize that a church that is outwardly flourishing also needs to guard against any uh, occurrences or space for compromise for for uh, this sense of, of feeling um, you know like you don't have to do anything more God's working so mightily you don't have to be on our guard that's not true as the apostles themselves showed there cannot be any room for such expressions 
of self-praising against the gospel of embezzling the church of shortchanging the communities in need now there cannot be anything like that so for the church it is important that we uphold church discipline whenever someone is being mistreated whenever someone is blatantly living out a life that is uh, not forthright those in leadership especially need to uphold the gospel standard God judges, we hold to account. But finally, I guess, for, for us as individuals, whether it's a husband and wife, or an individual, or even a family, I pray that there would never be any among us who see church as an opportunity to further our own self-serving status or egos. Uh, at the expense of putting up the name of God in the gospel, at the expense of showing this world how much it needs the gospel, but instead we put in our own self-serving interests, that people will pat us on our back, you know, that people will talk about our generosity, that people will, 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 will instead put us on the pedestal as opposed to God. There is no place for egos in the church. doesn't matter if you're the priest, doesn't matter if you're in leadership, doesn't matter if you're a benefactor. There is no room for that. And worse still, there cannot be any room for cheating the church as they do God's work, as they love sacrificially. For us, even as we reflect on what it means to live in the Spirit, let us realize that the Spirit of God is not only a Spirit of power, but it's the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of righteousness. And those who follow the Gospel do well not just to stand in awe of the love of God, but they would do well to yield in fear of God, reverential fear, to realize that the God who loves them is also the God who judges. So I pray that this sermon is a good reminder for us, especially in this season, that we will continue with the help of God through His Spirit, with clarity and conviction, to live lives of integrity to live lives of love, to live lives of accountability. May God bless you. Let us pray. Father, I just pray for all of us, including myself, Lord, that we yield to the gospel message in Jesus Christ, that we not only marvel at your amazing love and grace, but we also yield, O oh God, to your judgment of righteousness. And that, God, we can only approach your throne of grace because Jesus has wiped us clean. And we know, God, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, is changing us day by day in the way and likeness of Jesus. Forgive us if this has just been an outward confession, but not a state of the heart that's being transformed. Forgive us if we can say the creeds perfectly every Sunday, but our hearts are not yielded to you. Help us, O oh God. Please be patient. Please have mercy for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.